You know, one of the concerns here in 2024 uh, is, of course, active shooter situations, terrorism situations, and just crime in general in this country. So I thought we'd bring in a guy who, uh, first and foremost, he's a fellow cop. And uh, secondly, he's an expert on uh, active shooter situations, terrorism, and so many other things. We have a bunch of mutual friends. And uh, so I thought you needed to meet him. Uh, Chris Grolneck, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to ask you what I ask every single cop that comes on my show, Chris. Why'd you become a cop? I ran out of Marine Corps. Uh, probably the simple answer. I was in about 10 years, uh, tired of traveling around. Uh, I got an internship over to Ross Perot's uh, protection detail. And the head of his detail was a longtime Dallas uh, commander. And he pretty much sold me right there in about 30 seconds. And that uh, just seemed interesting. And it was an e-ticket to be sure. I love it. So, uh, and by the way, let me just point out, A, thanks for your service. And B, my son was a Navy corpsman. So my son right. yeah, saved you guys. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Absolutely. So you become a suburban police department in the in the Dallas area. And uh, what kind of things did you do? Well, obviously started with patrol and being a rookie and not knowing I was a rookie until it was too late. Uh, made a million mistakes. Uh, went on to become an FTO uh, gang unit, uh, undercover narcotics for about three years. We had a regional part-time SWAT team, and then we became a department uh, localized SWAT team uh, part-time. Uh, and then I went on to be a patrol corporal. I worked homicide for a little bit. Uh, almost everything inside. Got sent to internal affairs school, probably because of my you know, probably as retribution for something I did. Uh, no comment. And then I retired. I'm a uh, member of that club. Yeah, it's it's excellent. Professional standards. Uh, and you, you know, you see yourself on TV and you're like, oh, that, that doesn't look too bad. And then you see somebody else and you're like, oh, that doesn't look too good. And it's the same thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I learned a lot from that. Uh, it was a great experience. So you left law enforcement for the private sector and uh, and you developed... Uh, and expertise that, again, I think everyone is interested in. And uh, that is uh, active shooter training, active shooter prevention. Talk about that. So this is a subject pretty close to my heart. Uh, people follow their passion. I was injured on um, in the line of duty. I ended up having about 27 surgeries and uh, just couldn't return to work. I had a paralyzed left arm. And... Um, you know, when I speak to police, the first three, four minutes is when you need to capture the attention or even military people. And I do quite a bit with the commanders and the and the troops. And I always tell them, look, if you just give me the three minutes to listen to the beginning, the end will all make sense. So the beginning of this is in 2007, our department started a desk, the active shooter desk. Um, we thought prevention through being the good police that we are we could respond our way out of this. We, they're right, the sooner we got to an incident, the sooner we could save people, the more lives we would save. And I bought into that, lock, stock and barrel. And in 2010, I was involved in an active shoot in real time at our police department in McKinney. We came under attack. And, you know, I can tell you the details that I tell you in large speech speaking venues, like the World Police Summit in Dubai that I opened last year. Um, 
I was in jeans and a t-shirt, but like cutoff jeans and a tank top. It wasn't even, you know, to go to that moment in time. And I remember, oh, well, I'll be so prepared. It won't matter. I'm a member of SWAT. I'm an assistant team leader. I'm ready to go. And I don't think anything was farther from the truth. And it wasn't the gunfight that was the issue. I didn't fire my gun. It was the issue of not really understanding that no one knew what, what to do. I mean, no one. We had two officers brave in this gunfight with you know, nine millimeters or I'm sorry, 40 cals, um, Glock 22s, 141 yards away from the shooter that had an AR-15 that shot 168 rounds at us. So the long and short of it is he had a new optic on his firearm. The muzzle's pointed at the top of our building. He didn't know it. He wasn't shooting at us. Uh, he was, but, you know, God was on our side that day. And let me so let me just tell people that if you're not familiar with the 2010 attack on the McKinney, Texas Police Department, uh, look it up because it was extraordinary. It, it was a it was supposed to be a second Oklahoma City, if you will. I mean, he brought a he brought a whole trailer filled with ammonium nitrate soaked in diesel. I mean, we we shouldn't be here. So we you know a lot of mistakes went uh, went the way in our favor that day. And I learned more about active shooters that day just from my own experience than anything else. So I decided that I wanted to further my career. And, you know, I tell, I joke with people and it's probably true. I'm one of the dumbest people on the planet, right? I, I can barely spell my name, but I can tell you anything about active shooters now. But then I didn't even know what I did know, let alone what I didn't know, right? So I went to, I was getting uh, my master's degree at the University of Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I asked the region that I'd like to switch my degree program to international and domestic terrorism. And they pretty much laughed me out of the office and said, we'll, we'll help you find a school, but you graduate with your MBA first, and then we'll help you. I went on to University of Phoenix. Uh, they accepted the program and it was 18 months of pretty rigorous writing. And I became one of four or five people in America in 2012 to have a master's degree in the phenomenon of active shooter and then experience in an active shooter. And now there's only five of us, right? And we meet Every year we have a you know little roundtable session and a club I wish I really wasn't in, but you know once we're we're gonna have more of these and there'll be more people and hopefully I can retire. But so I bring that perspective of both academic from a common sense point of view and then logical point of view from being involved in that shooter, and I try to mix that into a message for the public because to be perfectly honest, there's a lot of police out there training active shooter. And what they do is they show up and they tell everybody, hey, this is what we're going to do when we get there. And the reality is I, I remind officers, I say, okay, well, your family is in an active shooter right now. What are they supposed to do? And let's back that up. What's the historic time frame for an active shooter? Did you know they last from zero minutes to eight minutes? Now, of course, they're all over the place because we have so many of them. The times are from you know minus zero minutes because they're on scene with firearms walking around before they do their act all the way to four hours and 45 minutes like virginia tech so the national average now is about eight minutes where they end guess how long it takes for police to get somewhere eight minutes right ironically so really the first responder is the public and what we're doing, we created a program about two years ago called the PRO model, P-R-O, Prevention, Response, and Options. And you can find that model anywhere. It's, it's wide open. It's free. It's under my resources. I don't sell a whole lot of things. Like I'm almost allergic to selling uh, because the business is, um, it's crazy. I, I wish I wasn't in this business. Right. And my goal is to actually retire as soon as possible. I just know we have a little bit more work to do. So I look at these 
incidents, every one of them, whether it's Maine, all the way back to Columbine. And I say, mm. take a look at what we've been doing for 25 years. We're actually re regressing because we believed we could respond our way out of this. So we're spending a $1.1 billion a year on active shooter prevention, which really translates to active shooter response, more vests, faster cars, more ballistic armor, better weapons. But if it's over in eight minutes and we're responding in eight minutes, sure, we need to be there sometimes, but and we might be there sometimes, but the majority of the time, it's not going to be us. So we need to split the difference and explain to our families, this is what you can do to prevent loss of life. Because we looked back in 2012 when run, hide, fight really came out, 2013, and we say, okay, what does run, hide, fight do? What does it do for an active shooter? It does nothing. It may do something for you. You might be able to run. You might be able to hide. You might be able to fight. But if you're in, say, a senior care facility or second grade, are they going to be able to run anywhere and hide? Where are they hiding? Under a desk? I mean, a desk has no ballistic value. That's like hiding under, like the old days when, you know, I hate to show my age, but when I'm behind a police door taking cover, is that really cover? Of course not. And all the police watching this would laugh, say, absolutely not. <clears throat> Same as the desk. And then finally, fight. Do you really think second graders are going to be able to fight with crayons? You know, and I won't even say the horrific tragedy that we had to watch to understand that. So run, hide, fight was based off the premise of stop, drop, and roll. However, stop, drop, and roll does something. If you're on fire and you stop, drop, and roll, you won't be burning. So we need to, we need to bridge that gap somehow, and I think we figure out how to do it. Why so many... Uh, active shooter incidents in this country and follow that up with why has it become so political? The first one is why so many? I would I would be careful that we don't have as many active shooters as the media and other people would have us believe, right? There's definitely an agenda and I'm not a right or left-wing conspiratist. I, I appear on CNN, BBC, Fox News. I, I've been on every channel. I think I have a little bit over 500 appearances on the news and I don't even, I, I quit collecting money for it. I, I just go now when I have something to say and um, I have the platform to do that. And I, I'm grateful for that. So I'm cautious how I put this, but <clears throat> let, let's just say there's 400 million guns in America. There's only been about 450 guns used in active shooters in 25 years, active shooters. How many people die from texting and driving a year? Distracted driving, about 9,000. Distracted driving, about 40. Yet we're not taking cell phones away and out of cars. So how many people die of active shooters every year? About 150. Flat. So I'm not saying 150 lives are worthless. What I'm saying is because I understand the outrage, the fear that these events cause shift political winds, if you will, and people find an agenda they can latch on to. And I believe it's been polarized, unfortunately, between left and right. And it doesn't matter which side you're on. Guns are the problem or mental health is a problem. And if you're on the left, you want to take away guns. If you're on the right, you want to provide mental health. And then sometimes that transcends. And what I'm saying is I think both those things are great. But if we don't look to solve the actual problem like it's cancer and treat it, we're just going to keep coming back to these types of conversations. That doesn't work for anybody. So from a civilian standpoint, whether I'm a parent, a grandparent with kids in the school, you know, or 
I'm a you know citizen who goes out and goes to malls and churches and things like that. You know, places where we hear uh, active shooters are happening. What's the answer? Another excellent question. I think the first thing we need to understand is uh, it's time to be honest with ourselves, right? Um, and especially law enforcement, military do not like hearing this. But it's not always a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about my opinion. I'm talking about facts. I can list eight instances where people were armed at a school with training, law enforcement or school marshal programs that did not even pull their firearm during the active shooter, but the first responder ended the active shooter. So yes, a good guy with a gun did stop the problem. Good woman with a gun did stop the person with the uh, active shooter. However, it was usually the responder, not the person first on scene. So once we understand that there's this ingrained difference, and it doesn't matter that you're, if your audience is watching this and let's say it's me, I'm watching this. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm definitely going to run to the fire. Well, that's my desire. My desire is to run to the gunfight because I want to, but am I able to? And you ask, well, sure you are. You're a trained police officer. Well, we have a really bad situation we can look back at just last year in Uvalde that doesn't necessarily say that. I'm not disparaging anybody. I, I've been plenty vocal on this. You can look at my record. I don't backpedal on anything I say. Um, you know, is, is that 376 too many police officers right now because they didn't do what they were supposed to do? Maybe. That's not for me to draw the opinion. I, I'm just on the side of the 19 dead kids and the two dead teachers. So leadership, failure to act, you know, I hypothetically, we're just going to say, I know someone that interviewed someone. How about that? Um, and there are several someones that were interviewed. And many of the answers were, well, I was never in a gunfight. And I remember being so upset when I heard that because guess who else was never in a gunfight? That 18-year-old. So like so many things I would ask you, what's one of the first things your field training officer taught you? Mindset, right? Always be prepared. So let's get back to your the breath of, of your question, the nexus of it. What do we do? What do we tell our families? The very first thing is, welcome to it'll never happen here. Get rid of that, right? It, it will happen or it could happen. And you don't need to live in fear. You just need to live in preparedness. And you have to be able to answer with your family, especially law enforcement, when what if becomes what now, what then? So do you have your family trained to get to a rally point? Is your family trained to evade the shooter? If they hear something from the left, do they go to the right? You know, let's use some really good statistics. Did you know that the Secret Service says it takes one minute to call 911 during an active shooter? That's true. However, it takes the average human being four minutes to realize they have to call 911. So if we have five minutes that's actually gapping us as police to the public, because what's the first thing you hear after an active shooter? We thought it was fireworks. We thought it was a backfire. And you know, I try to tell people when I go to corporate and large school venues, if you're on the 34th floor of the Pontiac building, it's not a 1974 Pontiac backfiring, right? It's you know, There's gotta be something wrong. So get that in your head through mindset and then teach that mindset to other people. They don't need to be warriors. They don't need to be John Wick. They don't need to be even patrol feed officers. Just be prepared that if something goes wrong in front of you, leave the opposite way. If you walk in a grocery store, you walk in a Walmart, what do they have in the back of the store? An exit, make your way there immediately. 
uh, find your family, know the rally points. You know, we live in a different world. So the days of dropping your kids off in the toy aisle while you go to your shopping, probably not the best idea anymore. Just have those common sense plans. Don't be paranoid. Just be prepared that it could happen. And if it does, that you have a basic plan because I guarantee you, you know, people say, well, I don't want to talk to my children about active shooters, right? It is a horrible topic. I agree with you. But when you and I went to school, and I'll tell you in 1970, I have a picture that I use in my presentations. I was hiding under my desk because we were practicing for what? Nuclear weapons coming in from Russia and the ceiling tiles were going to knock me out. If my parents could talk to me about nuclear weapons and, you know, forget me because I maybe I didn't turn out the right way. But uh, let's say you, lovely young lady that says, uh, hey, I, I lived through this and I went through that. I'm okay. Your kids will be okay because all we want them to do is survive, to live another day and prosper. So how do they do that? They do that by having an understanding of fire burns. If fire ignites, I leave. Guns shoot and kill. If a gun shoots, you know, starts shooting, leave. And then there's other mechanisms that are part of the solution, of course, that our families don't have control over, but our voices do. So, you know, we made so many changes in law enforcement after uh, the Columbine High School shooting, you know, and how we responded to active shooter situations. And uh, and then you fast forward to 2024. We don't even agree on what an active shooter situation is in a lot of instances. Um, but what kind of changes do we need to make uh, on the law enforcement training side to better respond? Another really good question. And, you know, I take a lot of flack for this one because I it's people think I disagree. So I'd like to preface it with I, I completely agree with the alert program. I completely agree with the SLED programs. I completely agree with trauma response units, stop the bleed. All those things have to be in place or we're going to lose those skills that we fought so hard to get. And if we look back at Columbine, it took 45 minutes for police to go inside there. Uvalde was an hour and 17 minutes. And we had 25 years. We've spent hundreds of millions of dollars training law enforcement through alert and something's not working. So if you just look at the, I mean, basic bottom line of alert they train to a standard right which is here or i'm sorry they train to a certification which is you pass the course you fire some sims you go through the buildings and i you know i've, I've been through alert several times many years ago and it's a great program it's needed but not everyone is capable of going into a gunfight and we have that expectation that don't worry a police officer's here and the state of Texas just mandated police officers for all schools. Well, how great. But when you look at the last eight shootings to include include Covenant, uh, the Christian school in Nashville, they had two teachers armed there that day that went through a martial program that did not pull their firearms. And the response was exceptional when they responded. So when you have the shooter in the parking lot for two minutes and 46 or 47 seconds, whatever the time is, Walking around with two AR-15s and a pistol, that might be a clue that something's going wrong, right? You don't need to be a detective to realize that. So what do we do? We use our voices and we start demanding the onset of technology. I mean, really, Betsy, the, the number one thing that we can do right now is just reverse our look on this. How, if police are the answer, which I firmly believe police are the answer, how do we get police there faster? It's not cars and it's not 
supersonic speed and it's not more police even. It's getting the detection mechanism to notify police faster. And if we can erase that five minutes, I call it the gift of time, right? Because if you're in if you're in a trauma and you're shot, what do you have that golden hour, right? You, you need to get blood into the body. Why go through the golden hour when we can give you back five minutes by solving this problem through some type of technology and then adding on to it? There is, here's the truth of the bottom line. There is no magic pill and there's not one solution, period. There's not. Because when you start telling me the one size solutions, I'll tell you the four, five, eight shootings, but that's not true. For example, just briefly, there I've gotten in a, a heated debate about magnetometers, and I knew what my end goal was, so I let it go on too long. But at the end of the debate, you know, magnetometers are the answer. Okay, great. What about the two ladies in the high school last year that were shot to death because a student walked through a magnetometer with a firearm? And they said, "Hey, do you have a firearm?" He says, "Yeah, it's right here," and he shot them both. They did not have an answer to, "Okay, well, the magnetometer went off. Now what?" So. Training is the answer. The police, you guys watching this are the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, the public is the answer. Policy is the answer. There's about eight answers and none of them are really cool, but they all work really well. Chris, we only have about 30 seconds left. You have so much wisdom and experience to share. Where can people find you? On Google, just type in active shooter expert and it'll return everything with my name, unfortunately, or um, ASPP. P-R-O, that's Active Shooter Prevention Project, preventionresponseoptions.com. So it's A-S-P-P, extra P-R-O.com. Chris Grolnack, I cannot thank you enough for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Put the gun down! Put the gun down! Last year, Law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.